How are we doing this morning? Good? Well, did you guys have a good holiday? Good Christmas? Anybody eat too much? Too much? How many of you guys know this? Christmas is not like Hallmark makes it out to be, right? It's not toasting marshmallows by the fire. It's eating way too much turkey and loosening your belt loop a lot. So anyway, before we get started, I have a lot that I want to cover, um, but I can't do this by myself. Can we pray? Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that you are here, and God, that we're not dependent on the words that I choose to speak, God. We're dependent on you teaching us and guiding us and leading us this morning. God, we pray that your spirit would be with us, that you would open up our hearts, that you would break down walls and boundaries, maybe that are holding us back. God, we pray for people in here that are skeptical, that do not know you. God, that you would draw their heart to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to cover three different terms this morning, and don't be scared by the word. I'm going to do my best to give you a simple definition, but the first term is this, justification. Anybody ever heard of that word? Justification. Justification is simply this, that at one time you were dead in your sin, and Christ, because of what he sent his son to come and do, and because of his life, death, and resurrection, declares you innocent. Because of his son, because of the price that Jesus paid. You're justified not because of your works, not because how good you are or what you've done or how good you can be, but you're justified because of Christ. Don't get that confused. A lot of people think that justification is how good you are and what you do and the works that you do. Justification has nothing to do with you, it has everything to do with Jesus. The second one is adoption. Obviously, we've all heard of this term, but adoption is this. God's not just a judge, but he's also a loving father. That when you are justified from your sin, that God comes in as a loving father and says, guess what? Welcome home. Welcome to the family. Now you get to be a part of sons and daughters, and you get to be a part of the kingdom of God. You get to be a son or a daughter of God. And I know a lot of times when we talk about adoption, when we talk about God as a father, for some of you, you've had fathers that don't treat you that well. And so when a guy gets up here and says that, hey, God is loving, he's kind, he's gracious, that doesn't really resonate with you well because your earthly father did not treat you well. But I stand up here this morning and I want to let you know that our heavenly father is a loving, gracious father. He's not like us. Like me, with my kids, I get impatient. If you go to Walmart, you get impatient with your kids. Um, if you take your kids anywhere, have you, let's stop real quick. Anybody have over one kid? One? Okay. If you have only one kid, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Anybody have over two kids? Two kids. Over three kids? Over four kids? What are you doing? Five kids. <laughs> it is a chore and a task when you go out to eat, Right? It becomes a whole new ball game when you bring your entire family to go out to eat. Pizza Hut becomes like just, I don't know what happens, but it's not enjoyable anymore. There's a lot of impatience that takes place inside of me as a father that when your kids are jumping around and you say, son, you're supposed to be eating pizza in this booth, not this one over here. And they're running around and asking for a gumball or a teddy bear or whatever it is, you get impatient. And God's not like that at all. God's not an impatient father. He's a steadfast, loving father who's very patient with us. 
He doesn't get easily aggravated. God says crazy things like, ask me again. Ask me again. If I say ask me again in my home, that's a threat. <laughs> Son, ask me again. And I will. He's, what does he say? He says, ask me again. Our Heavenly Father says things like, come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Our Father sees our junk. He sees the things that we struggle with. And he says, come to me. What do you need? Ask me. He's not like our earthly fathers. He's patient. He delights in us. He's long-suffering. He's very patient. And he has a great deal of joy and pleasure towards us. So to sum it all up, justification and adoption, that is the nature of our relationship with Jesus. At one point, we were dead in our sins, and Jesus says, welcome to the family. You are no longer dead in your sins. You are no longer um, blameless, but you are innocent. Not because of what you've done, but because of who Christ is and what he has done. And now you get welcomed into the family. Now you've been adopted. And here's the crazy part. All of that justification and adoption happens in an instant. This, the moment that you receive salvation, the moment that you ask Jesus to come and be the Lord of your life, justification and adoption happen in an instant. And here's what happened with most people. They get saved, they receive salvation, they accept Jesus as the Lord of their life, and then they're continually fighting to be adopted and to be justified into the family of God. And it doesn't work that way. Like, once you're in, you're in. Once you're in, you're in. It's not you trying and, and trying to figure this all out and trying to be a good person and spinning your wheels to be justified or to be, God, please let me in the family. It's not like it happens where, where God says, okay, listen, I'll, I'll justify you, but I'm not going to really adopt you yet. Because I don't really trust you. I don't really trust you yet. It happens in an instant. Once you receive salvation, you're justified and you're adopted. Now let me be fair. Some of you have probably hung out in church for a while. And maybe you feel like, you're like, well, hey, it didn't happen in an instant for me. Maybe you've been sitting in the back row for a year or so now. Maybe you've com been coming in church for a, a few months, and you're still kind of checking this whole God thing out. You're not sure. Trying to get your feet wet. But I can promise you this, the moment that you receive salvation, the moment that you ask Jesus to be the Lord of your life, justification and adoption happen instantaneously, and you do not have to continue to work for it the rest of your life. So here's the thing that gets sketchy, is although you were made blameless, what happens? You still have sin, right? So you've been grafted in, Jesus declares you innocent because of his son, but then what happens? You bring your dirty self into this relationship, right? You bring your sin and you bring your junk and you've been declared innocent, you've been adopted into the family, and you're kind of like the redheaded stepchild, like, I don't really know what's going on yet, but I got a lot of junk. And so you walk into this relationship with Jesus and you see all these other people that appear to have their act together and you think that you've got to earn salvation to keep it going because maybe God will leave you. The moment that you're justified and the moment that you're adopted, it is what we call positional holiness. That you're, 
put in a position where God sees you as righteous and he sees you as holy because of his son. Because of his life and because of Jesus' resurrection, he sees you holy. Not because of what you've done, but because of Jesus. But like any loving father, he wants more for his son than just to come into a position, right? He wants him to be better. Every loving father sees his son and says, look, he might be good at this, but one day he's going to be a whole lot better. And so what does a father do? He pushes him, son, you can do it. A loving father is constantly pushing and saying, there's much more in you. You have more in you. So the moment you're saved, the moment you're justified, the moment you're adopted, the aim in the whole goal of the rest of your life is to look more and more like Jesus. So that's when we get into the third term, which is sanctification. That's what I want to talk about this morning. Sanctification is not like justification And it's not like adoption. It does not happen instantly. Wouldn't that be great? Like we walk into a relationship with Jesus and it's like, bam, all sin, gone. All temptation, gone. But it doesn't happen like that. Here's the crazy part. And and some of you might not like hearing this, but sanctification is the rest of your life until you die. Why? We live in a fallen world. And every day, because Jesus is gracious and slow to anger, and he's steadfast with us. He said, all right, let's work on this today. All right, next week, let's, let's work on this. If he just dropped it all on you at one time, it would crush you. So sanctification is, does not happen in a moment, and it does not happen in an instant. It's something that happens for the rest of your life. Sanctification is the Holy Spirit working in you and helping you to become more and more like Jesus. Sanctification requires what we'll call grace-driven effort. It means the things of Christ become more appetizing than the things of the world. That as you grow up in the faith, and as you grow up into your relationship with Jesus, the things of the world begin to become fleeting, and the things of Christ begin to look more appetizing to you. So here's the thing that you've always got to ask yourself, because some of you ask yourself, am I really saved? Do I really have a relationship with Jesus? Is your appetite for Jesus growing? If it's not, then you're probably not saved. Is that pursuit of Jesus like, God, I want to know you and I want to be more like you every single day? So the big question that a lot of people have is, how do I become more and more like Christ? And if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. And it says this, If then you have been raised with Christ. Stop. If then you have been raised with Christ. What does that mean? If you are a new creation, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer... So we see that justification and adoption and sanctification is only for those that know Jesus. And only for those who have a relationship with Jesus. Here's the thing. If you're in pursuit of self-betterment for becoming a better person, you're running a thousand miles in the wrong direction. A lot of times people think that Jesus is going to be more pleased with a better version of them. He's pleased with you right now. You're already in. You're in the family. 
You've been justified. You've been adopted. And now he just wants you to look a little bit more like he does. So sanctification, justification, and adoption belong to those who are in Christ. Let's continue reading. Colossians 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is a huge verse. That your flesh has been crucified. That you died, and Jesus covers you. That's adoption, and that's justification. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is the idea that justification and adoption have taken place so that now when God sees your life, he sees you as hidden in Christ. I had a conversation with a guy at lunch the other day who was really just, who's, who's known Jesus for a long time, but has had a really hard time just understanding the gospel. And here's the crazy part. The gospel is so simple but because it's so simple, it's so hard to believe. Because you're like, wait, hold on. Is that really all I need to do? Yeah, that's it. That's it. No, no, no. There's, there's got to be much more. There's got to be something I have to do. Yeah, there is. Now you just love Jesus and you pursue him. So this idea of justification and adoption is saying that when Christ looks down on you, he does not see your sin. He sees his son. When God looks down on you, he sees the perfection of Jesus Christ, not your flaws and not your imperfections. When God looks down on you, he sees the good deeds of Jesus Christ, not yours. Let's continue reading. Colossians 3, verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The text is going to turn a little bit, and it says, put death. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away, all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So here's what this text is going to do. It kind of gives us a blueprint for how the Holy Spirit is going to sanctify us. Christ is all about transforming our lives so we what? We live visible, holy lives. So I'm going to teach you a few words this morning, um, and I'm going to need your help a little bit. The Puritans would use two words to explain how sanctification works. And the first word, we're going to throw it up on the screen, and it's on your notes as well. It's called vivification. Say it with me. You try it. Ready? Vivification. Say it again. There we go. And this is what it simply means to pursue Jesus. So sanctification and becoming more and more like Jesus starts with your pursuit of Jesus. You can't know somebody, and you can't be something that you're not pursuing. 
So the, per, the first part of sanctification and visible holiness is vivification. Setting our minds on things that are above and getting our minds off the things that are below. It's a change in mindset. So what does that look like? Romans 12, 2 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So renewing your mind on a daily basis is not just simply um, cracking open the word and memorizing scripture. Because here's the thing. What did Jesus do to the Pharisees who just simply memorized scripture? He rebuked them. Why? Not because they knew scripture, but because they didn't apply it to anything in their life. So renewing your mind is not just memorizing scripture and reading the word. So when we talk about renewing our minds, I'm going to give you a little example. Um, A few years ago, Claire and I actually moved a few blocks down from Academy Street to Harrington Street. And if you know something, when you kind of get into this routine of driving to the same place over and over, you kind of have like this road map in your head, right? So when you leave work, or when I would leave work, I would want to pull up in my old driveway, And instead of pulling up into my old driveway, I'd have to consciously tell myself, I don't live here anymore. I live on Harrington Street, right? So the renewing of our minds is the idea of pulling up at the driveway and going, hold on. This is death, and I don't live here anymore. I live over here. I've been justified. I've been adopted. I don't live here anymore. I live over here. Taking every thought captive is the idea of I'm going to watch what I'm thinking and make sure it lines up with now how I live. This is the renewing of our minds. This is vivification. I want to know him, see him, meditate upon him, and have him transform my life. If you know Jesus and you claim to have a relationship with him, this is why the Bible is so important. This is why the word of God is so important, because it reminds us where we live. It reminds us where our home is. It reminds us that instead of taking a left, we take a right. When we pull up to things that we want to do and we say, hold on, I don't live here anymore. I live over here. Do this for me. When you go home, maybe this week, and, and you're spending time with Jesus, Use your imagination. Put yourself in the story. Any men in here that when you go see a movie, like you put yourself in the movie? Anybody? Like my wife hates seeing action movies with me because I come out of that movie, I'm like, I get in my my minivan and I'm like, she's like, what are you doing? I don't know. I'm just, I'm in the character. You get so into it. Do that in the Bible. And I'm not telling you, like, imagine things and make believe stuff in the Bible. You, you, you can't do that. But put yourself in that story. I want to show you how, if we were to put ourselves in that story, how the Father treats us when we're in death and we're in darkness. Imagine the woman who gets caught in adultery and gets dragged out into the street. She has tears flowing down her eyes. And all these people around her picking up a stone, wanting to stone her because she's just been caught in adultery. And Jesus bending down and grabbing her, and he says, he he who has no sin, throw the first stone. That's how God deals with us. That's who our Father is. Like, when when we're dealing with deep, dark sin, 
That's how loving our Jesus is. You have a woman who is dragged into the middle of the streets and people are wanting to kill her. And Jesus loves her. It doesn't make sense, right? In our, in our culture, we think, man, that's right, they get what they deserve. But that's not who Jesus is. He's patient, he's kind, he's steadfast, he's slow to anger. That's vivification, pursuing Jesus. When you see that that's how your, our Father treats people, that you go, God, I run to you. Because you know that you might have some deep, dark stuff that you're dealing with, but you know who the Father is that is dealing with you. That he loves you, that he's patient with you, that he's kind. It's training our mind to say, I don't live here anymore. That's not my house. This is not my home. I live here. I once was a part of the world, but no longer. And there's going to be times when, we, when maybe we take a detour and you show up and you're involved and you're in the middle of a sin. And you're in the middle of doing something that you regret. But in that moment, you go, hold on, stop. I don't live here anymore. I got to get out of here. The second part of sanctification is a term called mortification. Maybe you've heard of it. But it's the idea that every opportunity that you have, that you put sin to death. That as a Christ follower, as a Christian, as somebody who passionately loves Jesus, you put sin to death at every possible opportunity that you have. So what things are we talking about? Like Colossians lists a few. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, idolatry, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. So when those things are creeping in your heart, to go back to my illustration, when we pull up in that driveway and say, I want to blow up at this person, that you stop and you have that conscious thought of, hold on, I don't live here anymore. I live over there. There's a reminder that occurs in sanctification of going, God, I don't live that way. Death is this way and life is this way. There is a season that will come when your mind will be renewed to the point where you're not battling yourself all the time. That will come. Now, to be fair, I'm not saying that battles disappear. You know, when you get saved, maybe you put away some battles and you got some new ones now. <laughs> so I'm not saying that all that kind of dissipates, but what I am saying is that there comes a point when you can constantly choose, God, I choose you, God, I choose you. Even in your sin, you can turn from it and go, God, I'm choosing to follow after you. That it's not always this epic throwdown between, you know, Satan and you, and you're trying to constantly play this tug-of-war game. There is a time when your mind does become renewed, and you can choose to follow Jesus on a daily basis. And instead of you choosing to go left, instead of you choosing to go right, you just ask the question, you say, God, what do you have me do in this? Don't go in that movie and see naked women? Okay, great. <laughs> it's, it's just one of those things. So there are things that are explicitly sinful that Colossians talks about. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, 
sexual immorality. But then there's also things that are morally neutral. That maybe the Bible doesn't say, hey, that's sin, but maybe it causes you to drift a little bit. Maybe it causes you to actually not want to pursue Jesus. Maybe it's not a direct sin that is labeled in the Bible that somebody can point out to you, but it's something that kind of slowly takes your eyes off of Jesus. Those are morally neutral things. Sanctification is about pressing into the Lord and being very serious about putting anything and everything to death that is sinful. Or anything that might even hinder you from knowing Jesus. So what I've tend to notice is that many people are not too serious about sanctification. You know, being a youth pastor for many years, I hear responses all the time like this. Well, what's wrong with that? Where does the Bible say I can't do that? It doesn't say it in the Bible. Jesus went into bars. Jesus turned water into wine. That's a dumb argument because Jesus went into those things and he was like raising people from dead and healing blind eyes. Are you going to go do that? See, it's, it's things that are morally neutral. Maybe you can't prove it in the Bible, but maybe you walk into a movie and you walk into the place and you say, yeah, I can sit in this. And maybe you don't necessarily sin in that moment, but guess what happens? You walk out of that movie, you go home, and for three days those thoughts are cycling in your mind, and four days later you act on the sin. It's like this kind of slow burn and this slow cycle. Maybe you didn't sin in that moment, but it's coming. It's something that takes your focus and your mind off of who Jesus is and what he's done. It's affecting you in a negative way. And so if you're the one in here making that excuse of going, what's wrong with it? What's not wrong with it? If it is pulling you away from Jesus, then why in the world would you want to do it? If it's affecting you negatively in regard to how you love Jesus and how you pursue him, then don't do it. I've gave this example before, if you've heard me preach before, but for me... I have to set my alarm even on days off. I'm just one of those people like, oh, straight up, I love sleep. Anybody in here, any, anybody like just love sleep? I love sleep. If I do not set my alarm, I will sleep past anything. You could have a tornado come through my house and I'll still be sleeping. And when I sleep in, here's what I find, that like the rest of the day, I'm groggy. The rest of the day, I don't treat my wife well. The rest of the day, I don't react and I don't respond to my kids well. So my wife and I, just a rule of thumb, if, the, uh, if my kids beat me to the alarm clock, I lost. <laughs> Which happens a lot of mornings. Dad! Just side note, I don't know why my, my, my wife decided to buy our kids this... Uh, this huge, like, thing of gumballs for Christmas. Don't do it. Don't. Every single morning, my son wakes up, Dad, can I have a gum? If you ask me, ask me again. <laughs> the other morning, I, I, asked, I told him, I was like, go, fine, you can have one. How many did you have? Uh, nine? Okay, no, no more. 
So are there things that are morally neutral in your life? Then maybe you're justifying it of going, it's not sin. And listen, everybody's affected differently. Some people can do some things that others can't. I'm not saying that you can't do those things. I'm just saying if it affects you in a negative way and pulls your attention and your focus from being with Jesus and pursuing him, then don't do it. Now, I think this is the question that many people have been asking through this whole process. All right, I understand sanctification. I understand that I've been justified, that, that Jesus declares me innocent through his son. I understand that I've been grafted in, I've been adopted into the family, and sanctification is this whole idea of just being more and more like Jesus. Then can you answer this question, then why do I feel dry right now? Why do I feel like nothing? Why do I feel like my relationship with Jesus is just stale? Because you're in, you're part of the family, but I feel nothing. There's two hurdles to sanctification. The first one is this, just mowing over sin. Just mowing over sin. And this mowing over of sin most commonly reveals itself in relationships. So marriage or friendships or co-workers. Before I finish explaining this, let me just say this, that God is at work in the pain points. Don't despise when things are painful. You're going to go through life and things are going to hurt. And you don't get to ask the question of, God, why are you doing this to me? Because here's the thing. There's too many why questions that you will never have answered. And in those pain points, you just got to say, God, I'm, I'm trusting in you that this is just making me more like you. I'm a why person. I like to ask why. Why? What I've quickly come to realize is there's no answers to some of my whys. God's doing sanctification. God is at work in the pain points. So the first hurdle is mowing over sin. You want to know what's actually going on in your heart? Get around people. Get around people. You ever notice that, you ever notice this kind of group of people, maybe you see them at church, maybe you see them at work or in your friends, they kind of always have new sets of friends like every two, three years. They never have consistent friends. You can literally watch a person have a complete set of new friends every two to three years and every harm, every betrayal, everything that has gone wrong and none of it has made them go, what's wrong with me? It's usually, hey, what's wrong with everybody? And it's always been not what's wrong with me, what's wrong with them. Nobody thinks they're, they're selfish until they get married, right? Like, I've never met single people that are like, dude, I'm just so selfish. I'm so selfish. And then you get married. What do you, what do you find out? Like, selfish. 
like crazy selfish. You are wicked selfish. Like your heart is immediately exposed in marriage of like, oh my goodness, I do that? That's how mowing over sin kind of reveals itself a lot. And you can see it in your relationship and how you deal with your wife. I, I find it so funny that I'm even preaching on this this morning because two, two nights ago, anybody ever have that, those things? It's like, babe, close the door, we got to talk. Anybody ever have that? Like kids are screaming out, I'm like, shut up, if you come in this door again, I got to talk to your mom before she blows my head off. I'm talking about sanctification in this whole week, that's what God's been doing in me. And we're sitting down talking about things, and it had nothing to do with her. It was just me being selfish. God uses relationships often to sanctify us, to make us more like him. Do you see the reason why community is so important? See why people in here are so important? Do you see why you can't afford to do life alone? Because if you do, you retreat. And everything is left to your own ideas and your own kind of resolve. And you get to pick and choose what is right and what is wrong. That's what happens when you separate yourself. The fire of community reveals who you are. People reveal who you are. Your wife reveals who you are. Your kids reveal who you are. Side note. You want sanctification? You want to speed up the whole process? Have kids. Have kids. So, so ask yourself this question. Are, are you prone to run when things get hard? Are you prone to depression when things don't go your way? Are you prone to pride? Get around people that love you and they'll pull it out. They'll pull it out. That's why God didn't create us to be alone. What does he say? As iron sharpens iron. Can anybody finish it? So one man. I'm not an iron maker, but I would imagine it's a pretty violent process, right? Hammers, fire, melting. That's painful. You bring people into your life, and what do they do? They begin to point out your weakness, and they bring down fire, and they bring down hammers, and they work on that pain in your life, and they begin to deal with it. If I haven't convinced you yet that the issue might be you and not other people, consider this. Isn't it true that the symptoms usually reveal the disease? If you're always in conflict, if you're always being betrayed, if you're always feeling underappreciated, that's a heart issue. You need to check that out. Don't mow over sin. See, it's easy for me as a husband to see things in my wife and I's relationship and just go, I'll deal with that later. And like, just keep going. Like, just, I don't want to really touch that because if I do, then it's going to be sensitive and we're going to have to talk for an hour and I don't literally like that. 
Don't mow over things. When God points it out, when you see it, deal with it. God is at work in your pain. Don't be too quick to rearrange your life to try to run away from pain. God is at work in pain. Every single person that I have seen that loves Jesus passionately and has gone through painful things is always come out to glorify God. Always. We have pastors in our church that that's obvious and that's evident. God works through pain. I have three children, one on the way. My oldest son, Elisha Alexander McCann, he's always going to be my son. Always. But if he turns 15 one day and he says, Dad, you know what? Forget your way of life. Forget your God. I don't want anything to do with it. Does that mean that he's not my son anymore? He's still my son, right? Now, if that would happen, one of two things, I would be extremely heartbroken, and I would pray and plead and ask God for the rest of my life to change his heart. But he's still my son. Even if he choose to go a different path than I would have went. If he does just that, he's still my son, and I still want more for him than just to carry my name. Than just to be a McCann. I want more for him. I want him to love his wife better than I love my wife. I want him to love his kids better than I love him. I want him to love the Lord more than I know the Lord right now. I want him to experience joy. I want him to experience life. And I want him to understand that there's a greater joy and a greater purpose than just carrying out my name. And here's what this sanctification is. It's going after the heart rather than mowing over the weeds. And God is saying, son, daughter, I have more for, the, for you than this. Don't do this. Don't turn left. Make a right. You don't live here anymore. You live over here. So my son chooses to fall away. It does not discount the fact that he's still my son. So here's the thing. If you've made some mistakes, if you've made some things that you highly regret, maybe you're in the middle of it right now, it does not discount the fact that you're still a son or daughter. One of the greatest lies of the enemy is to say, you see that sin, you see those things, you see that pain, he doesn't love you anymore. And that's just not true. That pain point, that broken relationship, that pull towards sexual immorality, that anger in your heart, it's revealing something about you. You have an opportunity to become more and more like Jesus. Instead of just mowing over it, deal with it, address it. Bring other people in. You might have some symptoms. It's revealing the disease. Let other people work with it. So the first hurdle, mowing over sin. The second hurdle is what most Christians do. They cover up. They cover up. So you walk in the church doors and you have a pastor or leader come up to you. Hey man, how you doing? Oh dude, I'm doing great. No, really, like how are you doing? I really want to know. I've heard some things. You okay? 
yeah, yeah, I'm good. And like in the background, your wife is burning down your house, looking up ways on the internet to kill you and get away with it. And you're going, hey, are you sure you're okay? I see a fire back there. No, 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 I'm good. My wife, like, we're, we're so in love. So in love. We, we cover up. We don't want people to think that we're actually sinful. That we're actually, here's the crazy thing, human. There's a pull in church life to adopt language and posture that is not reality at all. To cover up, to go back to Genesis, to do what Adam and Eve did, use the fig leaves, cover up, run and hide. But the gospel is completely opposite of that. It says you should rejoice in your weakness because Christ is made strong. Christ is made strong when we uncover. Yet somehow we really believe what brings God glory is to try to be super strong. Can I say the exact opposite of what some people say? We need strong men in the church. We need men to just rise up and be strong. And here's the thing, we don't. We need weak men who are willing to go, I am weak, but God has made strong through me. I'll uncover. I'm not going to mow over the weeds. I'll expose myself. I'll let people know who I am so that Christ can be made strong. The redeeming work of Jesus Christ does not make you superhuman. It actually makes you human. You ever notice, like, when you get adopted and kind of grafted into this whole church world, you see these people that you think are like, dude, they just, man, they really love Jesus. Like, they never even fail. And I sat at lunch the other day with this guy who was saying that about me, and I'm, like, just laughing. <laughs> like, dude, you have no idea. You don't have to be superhuman. You don't have to act like you have it all together. Because if you actually believe in sanctification, it's a declaration that you're not there yet. So get this. For the rest of your life, you're not going to be there yet. Until you die. The rest of your life, Jesus is going to make you more and more like him. So why pretend to be something you're not? You know, sometimes as a Christ follower, the best thing that you can do is just, hey, bro, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't know where I am. I don't know what I really believe. I've been trying to read this whole Bible thing, and it's just not working. Instead of trying to carry on some conversation with maybe something my dad or Pastor Josh or one of us set up here and just trying to regurgitate a sermon. Yeah, doesn't it say like somewhere in the Bible like, you know, Jesus like had, uh, I don't know, a lamb? What? What are, what are you talking about? If you don't understand and you're having a hard time, don't try to cover up and don't try to be somebody that you're not. Just say, bro, I don't understand. I'm in a hard time with this. 
you struggle with sexual immorality, confess it. If you struggle with pride, confess it. Don't cover up. The rest of our life, our entire aim is to look more and more like Jesus. You've already been justified. You've already been adopted. So it's the process of the rest of your life that he's making you look more and more like him. Don't deny the pain points. Don't get discouraged. Be encouraged that Christ is making you more like himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you that this morning that you're here. God, I pray for those that are wrestling, that are struggling in their relationship with you. God, maybe they feel dry. Maybe they feel like just something's not right. God, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would break down walls, God, that only you can break down. God, help us to leave here encouraged, not discouraged. Help us to leave here encouraged, God, that you have grafted us into the family, God. That we're sons and that we're daughters. God, help us to be honest with where we're at. In Jesus' name.